We return to Bringing Light into Darkness on 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. But what I wanted to get back to, Greg, is that what we hear is overwhelmingly this demonization of Russia and, and all of these things. And when you track down these stories... That Russia is indiscriminately killing Ukrainian civilians, that with complete certainty we know that Russia and not Ukraine was responsible for the Bucha massacres that there are great numbers of defectors from the Russian army and that the Ukrainians are decisively winning the war on the ground in the Ukraine. The Russian bounty story or the skirple poisonings that happened a while back. I mean, they were already condemning Russia before the investigation had even occurred or was completed. We'd already pulled our diplomatic corps from them. So this is about demonizing Russia, I believe. And I don't think Russia is a great place, but I think we demonize it not because it's bad, but because it called us out over our Libyan illegal invasion. It supported the Assad government in repelling our jihadist led military opposition there and importantly called out the unipolar position of power that the United States had in the world that was no longer viable all direct threats to our geopolitical position of world dominance that don't other countries have a right to challenge. And in addition to standing up to U.S. foreign policy excesses, and additionally, it is such an economic, powerful entity that was growing in its economic relationships with the European theater. And that explains, I think, why it provides a motive for why the Nordstrom pipelines were blown up. And then they blame that on Russia, right? Like they would blow up their own pipelines. It's so absurd that everything is blamed on Russia that you can roll out that and nobody bats an eye. You know, they think, well, maybe. Anyhow, so I just wanted to get that in about the media coverage. So Bringing Light into Darkness seeks to present a counter-narrative of important information that's been left out of the discourse. Not to change your mind, but to bring information that that mainstream media is not presenting that I think is worthy of consideration. Well, I wanted to take that a step further for my own edification. What we see is the presentation of the Ukraine as a well-established historic border, okay, within which there's a homogeneous nation who all think alike. And I think that's misrepresentation, uh, particularly in the eastern regions that have been at the bottom of this conflict for the last decade in the Donbass region. And it's very difficult for us to, in the West, to listen to and read what we see in the press and, and on the news to understand that. Right now, we're presented with a unified Ukraine that is totally unified, walking in lockstep against Russia. And in part, they may be doing that because of the aggression and, you know, trying to defend land. But we also don't have a real view of what's going on in Russia. I, I can't honestly say what the average Russian thinks or what they're told. Right. Uh, it, it seems to me that we have two economic powers, as you put it, in, in a conflict. The conflict line is now drawn through the Ukraine, and it's has little to do with the people on the ground. Well, number one, to adjust what Russians are thinking, the Russian public, that is, and who and what they support, I think is tied back to your original question about when the Soviet Union collapsed. When you go back and look at that period of time, you know, who is the person we most vociferously supported? He was a drunk and a criminal. It was Boris Yeltsin. And, and it was this terrible government that we were unconditionally supporting under the Clinton administration. They were just selling off 
state assets left and right to these oligarchs and to Western interests and all of this. And it was a just a fire sale. And everywhere in these new regions of the East, including in the former Soviet Republic, life quality was, was just going down the tubes. I mean, literally, your life expectancy dropped to almost you know, to around 60 or below, you know, 54 to 60 years old. And people, they lie about Putin. They say he's putting away all this money and that he just pilfers the economy. And the truth of the matter, I don't know what he does or if that's there's any truth to any of that. But what I do know is that the welfare of the population, majority population in those very areas that we're talking about has literally skyrocketed since that period of time. Russia has become a very, very strong economy with respect to the living standards we're talking about, okay? So we get lied to about even the domestic deal. And, you know, there's repression in Russia and the LGBT community. Well, we could say that about just about anywhere where the LGBT community is uh, discriminated in, in unconscionable ways. But that's not unique to Russia. But if your interest is to demonize Russian, then you talk about how Putin has taken all this money. But when you really drill down into it and look at it, as esteemed Russian scholars such as Stephen Cohen has, and what did his significant research indicate into those very issues? His significant research indicate the evidence of all these poisonings of opposition candidates and such do not have evidentiary basis, and that perhaps Putin's pilfering of the Russian economy is wildly overstated. Meanwhile, when you look at the behavior and character of the person we supported, you can see that we don't really care much about those issues, as long as they are doing our bidding. We'll see that the person we supported, you know, was running tanks in and shooting the legislative bodies with tanks, Yeltsin. We didn't have a problem with that, but you have all of these demonizations of Putin. And go back to your question about 2014, because subsequent to the 2014 coup promoted by the United States, halfway across the world on Russia's doorstep, what came to power was a national security apparatus that were led by bona fide neo-Nazis that we have described in detail on past shows, and that the focus of their repression was in the Donbass, eastern Russian area of predominantly Russian speakers. They had suffered over 14,000 deaths, civilian deaths. Between the 2014 coup and the Russian invasion earlier this year. There's no mention of that in any of the coverage of the Ukraine, that we put this government into power in a coup in 2014. We did that. We were instrumental in that. There's really no denying that. I mean, you can deny it. That's what we do. We rewrite history. But at the end of the day, this government that came into power had alarming far-right neo-Nazi brigades as their leading troops out in the east there, slaughtering and killing these eastern Russian-speaking folks to the tune of what we said, some 14,000 deaths. Nobody cared at all about that. Nor the reports that the Russians were concerned about an impending invasion into the Donbass from the Ukraine, which was supported by the spike in bombings into the Donbass from the Ukrainian-controlled areas that was monitored by the OSCE, as well as the large buildup of Ukrainian forces on that Donbass area. Instead, all we got were Biden time and time again claiming that Russia was going to invade Ukraine and no mention of the provocations that we were instrumental in carrying out to arguably assure such an outcome would occur.
And let me just make one other point that I think our listeners should be aware of as they try to determine the truth of the Ukraine, Russia, NATO, U.S. conflict, is that according to the sources that we've been citing on the show, the number of casualties that you see of Russia versus the Ukrainians is overwhelming. It's like a five to one ratio of, or more ratio of casualties and deaths. So the Ukrainians are getting slaughtered. Normally, it's like a one-to-one ratio, a one-to-one-point-two ratio in a war, a ground war of this sort. Here it is six-to-one or or ten-to-one. And in the Bakhmut right now, where the greatest fighting is going on, they've brought down some 50,000 troops, all of these battalions to fight the Russians. They're just continuing to annihilate them at very disproportionate numbers. But we hear in the United States that Russia is getting their butt handed to them on the battlefield there. And lastly, the other really important thing I've learned is that when you have a war, normally, whether it was World War II or any other war, the number of military casualties generally equal the number of civilian casualties. So that if there are 80,000 as of August, there were some 80,000 deaths of Ukrainian military reported in Ukraine of Ukrainians. But really only some 10 to 12,000, which is way too many, but 10 to 12,000 civilians, Ukrainian civilians. So, but you're painting this picture as Russia is attacking civilians, slaughtering civilians, has no concern for civilians. But the results show the complete opposite, that they are moving slowly. And in fact, Amnesty International on August 4th, we talked about this the last show, came out with an extensive report that it was Ukraine, according to the amnesty report, that were using civilian shields. So even the 10 to 12,000 civilian deaths, a significant number were being created by the illegal war use of civilians as shields in, in hospitals and schools, etc. By the Ukrainian forces, many of them led by the far-right Azov battalions. Again, I'm not trying to make Russia out to be some wonderful entity. I'm just trying to show you the contrast and how we are being lied to and ask you, does that make one a Russian apologist? You know, we were lied to in Vietnam. We were lied to in Afghanistan. We were lied to in Iraq. We were lied to in Libya. We were lied to in Syria. And so we've got to learn from our experiences and not trust until we verify what our government says and our mainstream media report. And that's what I've studied intensively. So when these things start rolling out, instead of just believing them, we have to question them and look for evidence. And that, I guess, is really what I wanted to make sure to get across to the audience, that we're not invested in anything but trying to get as close to the truth for the American audience and bring these contradictions to them for consideration. And they can, of course, email me for any sourcing that they desire for anything that's been said on the show. Yeah. And uh, Pedro, it's good that you add that because... We're not giving opinions like it was truth. We're just talking about what we read and what we hear and hopefully revealing some other sources of information researched by individuals change their views of things. The last point that I wanted to touch base with you is the one point that people cannot argue for is the aggressive nature of Russia's action. In other words, attacking from Belarus, down, trying to take Kiev, uh, attacking through the uh, southern regions al- along the uh, river the, to create a corridor, a land bridge to the Crimea. Right. Yeah. Along the uh, southern shore of the Dnieper River. We don't like this aggression. And we see we see the results of this aggression every day on the news. And it's uh, very disturbing. And it has a very uh, stinging impact on us. We perhaps close our eyes to other, you know, other reasons or other causes. We just see the deaths that uh, are portrayed on the air. But given the situation, 
what, in your opinion and, and the opinion of your guests, have been alternatives to uh, what Russia has done. Uh, for instance, again, going back to uh, Cuba, we in many ways mitigated by our presence in Iran uh, what Russia did in Cuba, but it was settled. It was settled without war. It was settled without aggression. And it took, we agreed to remove ourselves from Iran. So did, uh, Turkey. did you see that? Yeah. Did you see that opportunity here? Uh, is it something that Russia overlooked? Is it something that was not uh, provided them as an opportunity? Yeah, I, I would say this. I mean, from studying the events that transpired that led up to the Russian invasion, we wouldn't let missiles 90 miles from our border, right? And what did we say earlier today that, that since the breakup of the Soviet Union and the U.S. broken promises of not moving eastward from the, from the German boundaries, there has been a consistent basis for the national security concerns of Russia having missiles on their border, which included moving 1,000 miles closer to the Russian border, despite making such promises not to, as well as just as recently, for example, in 2020, NATO conducted a live fire training exercise inside Estonia, and that exercise took place 70 miles from Russia's border using tactical missiles with ranges up to 185 miles. A missile attack so close would not leave Russia with time to react in a timely fashion, thus threatening their national security. Meanwhile, NATO, they continue doing all these very significant military exercises through 2021. At the same time, Russia sought a diplomatic solution to the Minsk agreements that it abided by and that the Donetsk entities abided by, but which the West reneged on. And then as recently as in December of 2021, Russia made it very clear, Putin made it very clear that these provocations must stop in the Donbass, where over 14,000 people have died, or else they were going to have to take necessary measures. All of this ignored. So arguably, you know, Russia did not rush to war here. I'm not saying I agree that they went to war, but I can understand their concerns that prompted their actions. The highest officials of the United States government have admitted that our foreign policy seeks to weaken Russia and that what we foresaw was a conflict, a military conflict between Ukraine and Russia that would do exactly that. So I think there's a strong argument to suggest that it was Washington, not Russia, that created the conditions that we find ourselves in today. And it's not just that. We unilaterally got out of the Intermediate Ballistic Missile Treaty, the one from 1987. We started putting missile sites into Hungary and then Romania, where they could strike. You know, they're just within five minutes from Moscow. That seems pretty clearly to be an untenable national security risk. I mean, I'm no national security expert, but that seems pretty obvious that we would never accept such conditions. Why should we expect Russia to just remain silent while we keep pushing closer and closer and closer and closer to their borders? Don't, do they ever have a right to respond with military force? Yeah, geography is important right here. Just look at a map where Moscow is. That, that's the point, Greg, that you're making, I think, is that yes. we're not going to let some Russia put their missiles 90 miles from our border, and we were not. In fact, if you go back to that time, Russia said they didn't have missiles there. And Adley Stevenson from the UN showed the YouTube flight photos that showed that the Russians were lying. Look at these. He threw them down famously at the UN. You liars. So I, I think it's clear that both Russia and the United States have a history of not being forthcoming when it comes to these foreign policy issues. Although I must say, studying U.S. foreign policy over these decades, it's been clear that it's, it seems we have a much more committed pattern to misrepresenting the truth than 
Russian government statements concerning their foreign policy issues and concerns. And therefore, I do a lot of research before assuming a position of what I feel is closest to the truth. And that's what we present on Bringing Light into Darkness. But moving on from that, it's every country has the right to their own sovereign choices as long as they don't infringe on another country's national security. Okay, so Russia putting their missiles 90 miles from our border. Everyone, I think, agrees that that was a violation of our national security and we would not allow it and we didn't allow it. Now, when Russia does that, that's what they did in December of 2021, Greg. They went to the United States and Blinken and Biden completely blew them off. No, we're not going to negotiate NATO. NATO is an independent decision of a sovereign nation, Ukraine. If they want to join, they can join. Well, no, they can't. If you're saying that they're going to be right on the doorstep of Russia, it was a red line. It was a red line. Since at least 2008, some 15 years ago, when U.S. ambassador to Russia at the time, William J. Burns, who is now our CIA director, he admitted in a classified 2008 embassy cable that NATO expansion to Ukraine crosses Moscow's security red lines and could potentially split the country in two, leading to violence or even some claim civil war, which would force Russia to decide whether to intervene, end quote. So we knew what our actions were likely to precipitate. And therefore, this combined with the other evidence we are presenting, there's a strong argument to suggest we intentionally provoked this conflict. So to let Ukraine become a NATO nation is suicide for Russia's national security interests. Because if you attack Ukraine, it's an attack on a NATO nation. An attack on one NATO nation is an attack of all. And that is the case here. So what they're doing, I believe, and, this, and I do believe this after studying it, I'm not in favor of Russia invading Ukraine, but I believe absolutely they were provoked and they were provoked intentionally with the idea that they could then levy a bunch of sanctions and try to eliminate them as an economic competing chess piece on the geopolitical chessboard, if you will, and the destruction of, of the Nord Stream pipeline. You're looking at the whole decimation of the European economy. And with it, the demise of the quality of life in significant ways for all Europeans. While the U.S. is driving a wedge between European and Russian trade, the only country that benefits from such a scenario is whom? All of these European countries are getting de-industrialized. They don't have enough oil. The only country that has benefited from this in any measurable way is, is guess who? Us. We're selling our liquefied propane gas now to Europe at three times our cost or whatever that number is. It's a huge deal. Ukrainians are getting slaughtered. All of the military equipment that's going into Ukraine theater by the NATO nations, including the United States, is getting decimated and now they're backing off. And in fact, they've even told, I'm sure behind closed doors, Biden, that they, that's why Biden won't give Ukraine any more of these more advanced ballistic missiles because NATO countries are starting to fall apart. They're fracturing. They're saying, no, we cannot go to war. We will not go to war with Russia. I'm talking about like France and Germany. So this is what's going on in that theater. I, I think we had the Minsk agreements. They were intentionally sabotaged. They were never an honest brokerage. And that kept the Russians they were not party to that, but they were, you know, that the Minsk agreement was never about the Donbass breaking away from Ukraine and joining Russia. It was about giving those Ukraine in the East the protection that they needed from the aggressions of this new government. And those were all written into this Minsk agreement and such. So, you know, basically their ambassador, the Russian ambassador said, you know, we kept retreating, we kept retreating, we kept retreating. The Russian ambassador said, we can't retreat anymore. This is a provocation 
by the United States, I believe. And, it, and it's a way to get at Russia like we did much more successfully in the Afghan uh, situation that Brzezinski got them into. This now is completely the opposite. Russia's just gotten stronger. All of our NATO alliances have gotten weaker. And you're starting to see fracturing left and right. And you're seeing an absolute bloodbath in the Ukraine with the losses that the Ukrainians are experiencing at such disproportionate rates to the Russian losses. Think about that. We are enabling the decimation of the Ukrainian people. They wanted to go to the peace table back in April. And it was the UK and the United States that told Zelensky, no way. And he went along with that. We pretended to say, oh, no, this is Ukrainians fight. We support whatever they want. But when they wanted peace, we said no. Uh, UK said no. And that's as verifiable as everything else that I'm sharing here tonight with you all. I think it's just a terrible, terrible situation. I'm not anti-Ukraine. What a heroic fight they're putting up, completely overmatched. And their artilleries, are, they're just getting blown to pieces. Every time they shoot off fire, according to the military analysts that we've had on the show and that we access to bring our information to the show, within a minute or two, they can show they, they can determine where that was fired from. And these where they're being fired from, these military equipments take three minutes or four minutes to pack up and get out of there. Well, the Russians apparently in two minutes can find them and boom, they're gone. And that's why you see more and more and more and more destruction of Ukrainian assets in the military theater, despite the enormous, what, $110 billion that we've put into the, to the deal just since the beginning of the Russian invasion. Well, one last question for you, Pedro. Uh, since this is a New Year's show, what do you see in the, the, the coming months? Uh, there's talk of getting to the table in February, uh, both sides talking uh, talking that down. But what, what do you see are the prospects for the coming year? Uh, it can't continue like this for much longer. Uh, like you say, there's a lot of tension being built up. It's, it's like being around a volcano. You can't right. live around a, a lava spewing volcano too long before you have to take action. So what do you think is going to happen? That, that's a great analogy. I, I, well, I, I will tell you this. I'm not a military expert, right? But I study all this stuff a lot. And I think all of us have common sense. We have a cerebral cortex. We can do deductive reasoning and we can analyze things. If you have good, honest data to get at the veracity of what's going on, but due to all the disinformation, this is a very challenging task. And then based on that, I mean, I would say this. This guy, Zelensky, he's living in a delusional world. He put forth a peace proposal where all the land Russia's taken needs to be returned to them. They get war reparations for everything. And by the way, I'm not in disfavor of war reparations. I think war is a terrible thing and reparations should be given, but they should be given from all parties responsible for the war, not just the main actors in this case. But with that being said, this is going to be a military solution. Russia is now saying, Lavrov has said, we're willing to ne negotiate, but Zelensky is not negotiating. And along with that concern is the winter is coming apparently now in the north in Kharkov and farther in that northern part of Donbass. It's freezing over, but in the south, southern regions, it's not completely frozen over yet. And that's apparently really essential for uh, the offensive that Russia has been building. You know, they brought up 300,000 troops. Th this is going to just get uglier and they are going to take all of the down into Odessa, it looks like potentially leaving the new Ukraine boundaries, a landlocked new Ukraine, unless there is a real honest and genuine peace negotiations. And unless Zelensky withdraws his ridiculous 10 point peace plan and puts forward a peace plan that would be acceptable for consideration for all sides. 
But I, I just said to end the show that Russia has indicated, and I think rightfully so, that they cannot trust the United States. They cannot trust Germany. Merkel's already admitted that. Every European power that signed that was in the Minsk agreement, they cannot trust. And so they're going to be very resistant to just go down another diplomatic deal unless, it, unless there's some real teeth to the, the concessions that all sides would need to make. My own view of it, and, and again, I'm no expert, uh, is that there is no real military solution. Uh, this is World War I being replayed here. And there also is no honest, informed, believable broker who can broker a piece. Uh, you know, no, and you're right. And I, I think the last thing to end the show, Greg, if I could, is there's been writings about some type of buffer zone. Right. And the buffer zone would have to be big enough so that any ballistic missiles, their range that Ukraine could ever have would not be able to reach the Donbass area. You know, you're talking about hundreds of miles then. Right. And that's why some people that I really trust say there's not going to be any DMZ, that Russia is going to. This is a military campaign now and it's not going to be over until until it's over, until uh, Russia can secure their concerns as well that they're not they're not going to allow a going on forever shooting over you know some type of dmz but greg thank you thank you so much for making yourself available and i would love to continue this discussion with you again time will tell sounds like we're going to have more opportunities unfortunately and right. you know my thanks for your asking and uh, for helping me inform myself i think your listeners if they have questions, uh, have them send them in. And you do a great deal of research and a great deal of informing and responding to these questions uh, as you have to mine tonight. Very good. And you can do that by going just, just an email to P-G-A-T-O-S, P-Gatos, the number zero zero at gmail.com. P-Gatos, the number zero zero at gmail.com. Uh, Greg Ciotti, Undercover Greg, one of the great, great assets at Co-op Radio. Thank you for joining us and helping to bring light into darkness. We'll see you next week.